I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Whether you're a brand, large business, small business, or an individual, you need customers. And the chances are some of your potential customers are probably listening to this podcast right now. From history... When Napoleon led Boulogne for a year... Politics... If that person is poor, it's a bad neighbourhood. Then you have the disproportionate police brutality, which is meted out instantly at people of colour. Culture... Had they written it that Chris called an ambulance for hours straight away, we wouldn't have learned about the severity of alcohol withdrawal either. Well done to the writers. Thank you for making a wonderful podcast, but I'd give Rotherham a miss. (laughs) (laughs) The Rotherham Tourist Board. Geekdom. The flag is a graphic symbol, not a verbal symbol. You know, why don't we just write France on the flag? I mean, we laugh when you think of putting a country's name on a flag. Society or music. Young people began to turn away from their parents' ethics and their style of dress and they began to dance to a new type of music. Royfield Brown's podcasts are downloaded just under 100,000 times a month. So putting your message here could well be worth it. If you have something to sell or promote, why not email royfield at gmail.com and hear your product or service promoted. It was the best of time. It was the worst she was the people's princess. We shall fight on the beaches. Oh, hey, man. These are the things that made England. We shall fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and evil woman. These are the things that made England. And a king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. Hello and welcome to The Things That Made England. I'm Royfield Brown. You might know me from some other podcasts like Dum De Dum or Ten American Presidents or Mid-Atlantic or even How Jamaica Conquered the World. But here I am, folks, here on The Things That Made England. This is not a show I do by myself. I have my two muckers, my old pals, uh, with me. Uh, first off, I have Luke Baxter. Uh, Luke, would you like to say hello? Uh, hello there. This is Luke Baxter. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm very glad to be on the show with you, Royfield. Yes, and also with us, we have um, a 1D Crowther. Uh, what is your claim to fame, sir? Uh, oh, hello, my name is David Crowther, and I cannot believe I've been dragged onto this second-rate show with these <laughs> frankly, you know, illiterate, unintelligible people. Well, as someone who is dyslexic, I am a very proud illiterate, sir. And um, <laughs> But hopefully... Even though I'm illiterate, I am well-versed in certain things. And one of the things I'm well-versed in is eating. I don't know about you, but in my 51 years on this planet, I have developed um, a habit of eating and appreciating uh, what I eat. Um, how about you, Luke? Um, I, uh, you're, you're a man that likes to travel the world. Um, I yep. take it that you're somewhat 
partial to Spanish fair? I am very partial to Spanish fair. I'm partial to fair in general, I think uh, it would be fair to say. Um, I Yes, I, I enjoy eating very, very much indeed. I eat a lot um, and uh, I enjoy most of what I eat and enjoy cooking a lot as well. Hopefully I'll be doing mm. a show on roast dinners quite soon. Well, if you like things uh, that come from Iberia, uh, this is the episode for you. Back 40 years now to the posters and prices of 1914. To the good old days Grandma's always talking about when a penny for your thoughts was a good offer. Responsible for the 40-year flashback is the owner of this fish and chip shop at Hayes Middlesex. He and his old Dutch, Mr and Mrs Frank Lincoln to you, have been together now for 40 years. And to prove it's never been a day too long, they've thrown open their shop to old age pensioners at 1914 prices. Frank expects to serve something like 1,500 suppers at three halfpence of time. It's his way of treating the old folk to a reminder of the days when they were young and of celebrating his own 40 years of married bliss. Once upon a time, it was roast beef and Yorkshire pudding. Now it's fish and chips, Britain's new national dish. And here's the latest thing in delivery service, the mobile fish and chip shop. When Henry McCroy's trailer pulls up at a lonely farm in the Sidcup, Kent district, a call is broadcast by loudspeaker to workers in the fields. Each combined lorry and trailer costs £3,000. Mr. McCroy has four of them on the road. They're a blessing to the folk who like something hot for a midday meal but can't get out to a cafe. Hard work on the land gives any girl a hearty appetite. And a nice bit of cod served up on the spot for the kids is another worry off mother's mind. Packing up and getting on the road again is only the work of a second. Other hungry mouths are waiting, waiting to come and get it. Now, now, Mr. Mr. Crowther. Oh, yes. Um, we we are proud, you and I, and also Luke. We're, we're proud Englishmen, proud mm-hmm. Brits, aren't yeah. we? Um, yeah. However, um, the land of our birth gets maligned when it comes to its culinary output, doesn't it? Why is that? Yeah. I mean, why unfair. is that, uh, Roger? Because it's very unfair. Well, I mean, I well, like my my cabbage overcooked because you've got to get rid of the taste because it's a disgusting vegetable and i love my um my scrambled eggs that have been cooked for about 40 minutes and i don't understand why the rest of the world can't see that that is good well there is something about northern european climes and their cooking and things being pickled and and, and, and overcooked from a, a southern european perspective you know the norwegians the swedes the Germans, the Dutch, the Finns, they're not exactly known for their cuisine either. So we're in good company in that regard. And then there is the whole thing of industrialization coming first to these shores and us industrializing food. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know what? I was making a statement there, but in, in my head, it was a question. I was waiting for somebody to, to refute well, actually, that. I mean, it's, certainly things have changed, haven't they, over the last 10 years? So you know, when I was in, in my, my salad days, um, you know, I wouldn't have eaten anything except plastic bread out of a bag, toasted half a loaf of time. Sort of thing. <laughs> Whereas now I have, to have artisanal bread. I mean, yeah. artisanal bread. <laughs> I mean, for crying out loud, save me. Sourdough, I should hope. Well, oh, not uh, sourdough. No, I have sourdough. It's sour. Oh, it's lovely. Well, David, it's not. It's rather lovely. However... <laughs> It has to be said, I'm constantly fighting a rearguard action over here in California when people go, England, okay, where are you from, London? And then invariably the second or the third thing they say is, your food is dreadful. And I go, when was the last time you were actually in England? You know, in terms of the breadth of what we have to offer in terms of food you can go and eat is much broader than it actually is here in California. So that, that is partly because because our cuisine isn't is considered not great, is that we can adopt cuisines from all over the world, um, and you know so you can eat food from absolutely ev- everywhere, and it's all sort of British, you know, like curry as we've discussed previously. Our cuisine is definitely the remnants uh, of empire. Um, however, our cuisine is very this one specific dish which is as English as. I don't know, whatever you want to say, uh, St. George, um, which I know is not very English at all. Yes, I know, David, not very English at all. But um, speaks to another bit of English history, 
that is us being a liberal bastion for emigration before Windrush. So, like all good stories, the origin of this quintessentially English dish um, starts abroad, and really starts in Spain and the Americas. It no, was in the... don't do this. Oh, David, shh. <laughs> it was in the 16th century that Jewish refugees fleeing persecution in Portugal and Spain landed in London, a beacon of relative tolerance. Uh, these immigrants brought with them a taste for fried fish and a practice for breading and frying the fish in a Shepardic manner. Of course, we're talking about the plate, the dish known as fish and chips. Without the Spanish Inquisition, <laughs> in which Judaism was basically outlawed, we wouldn't have this great classic English dish. That was unexpected. Mm, it was. It's true. It's totally true. I had no true. idea. Yes, nobody expected the Spanish Inquisition. Mm. Um, especially <laughs> on a podcast. Um, <laughs> actually, I have to say, Ralph, my, my wife knew that, knew that. I was flabbergasted. Mm. Spanish fried that. fish is delicious. Well, it's going to be the big revelation for me in this was actually how Jewish fish and chips actually is and how we still hold to this day um, a very Jewish tradition when we purchase our fish and chips. But we're going to come on to that. So we have the Shepardic Jews being told either convert or get the hell out of Spain. Some of them went to Portugal. Then some of those then found their way to England. But wherever Shepardic Jews travelled throughout Europe, they took their rich culinary traditions with them. And a lot of this was preparing fish. Uh, so it's very similar to Pescara Freto, or, but basically this is the tradition of coating flour on your fish and then frying it in oil. Fried fish was a very popular meal for Shabbat or Sabbath or for dinner on a Friday because a way of preserving the fish was to then coat it in this flour. So it could be eaten cold uh, the following morning. So you wouldn't, so, have, to, you uh, wouldn't have to cook on Sabbath. Exactly, because you, you weren't allowed to cook. So, gentlemen, I, I put it to you. This remnant of this Jewish tradition, observing the Sabbath, is still strong within a fish and chip eating <laughs> Englishman today. What is the day of the week when your mother, as a kid, said, Oi, Here's a couple of quid. Go down to the cheapy, get a bag of chips. I don't want to cook. What day of the week was that? I'm just trying to remember when my dad, when my dad, which night of the week my dad had 15 pints. <laughs> I put the question to Luke anyway, David. Yeah. <laughs> um, Friday. That is, it, is the day. Uh, it's Friday. Go on, Luke. And that's when you got the fried fish. Exactly. Yeah. Because Everyone did that the one, very they? first chip shops in London were owned by Jewish Londoners. But anyway... The 18th century is a quiet one in our story. Apart from a couple of curious little notes, Thomas Jefferson, the third president of those rebellious and ungrateful colonies, ah. somewhere on the other side of the Atlantic, wrote in his diary whilst being in London, he ate fried fish in the Jewish fashion. It was the emergence of Jewish immigrants selling fried fish in the streets of London in the end of the 18th century, uh, which was really quite notable. And what they did was they hung trays around their necks, hung by leather straps, selling their fried fish. Also, um, in 1781, there is a cookbook in which the author refers to the Jews and their ways of preserving salmon and all sorts of fish. So by the end of the 18th century, this Jewish tradition becomes part of the London miasma uh, in terms of food and hawking and selling. So we fast forward to the start of the Victorian age, where the English urban working class really emerge as the backbone to the Industrial Revolution. And we see this within the works of people like Charles Dickens. And we see in Oliver Twist in 1838, it does mention fried fish warehouses. In 1845, Alexis Sawyer brings out a cookery book, uh, which is for the people, and he gives a recipe for fried fish, again in the Jewish fashion, which is dipped in the batter of flour and water. The East End of London basically welcomed Jews fleeing from the pogrom. So we have the early Shepardic Jews, 16th and 17th century. But by the time we get to the 19th century, we have London, this liberal mecca, 
for, for all Europeans, for political and economic refugees. And we see a second wave of Jewish immigration coming into the east end of London because these Jews are fleeing the pogroms in Eastern Europe. Russian Jews and Spanish Jews ate the same food? No, because there's Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jews. But, yeah. but, but what we do have, though, is a melding of these two Jewish communities. Yeah. Famously, what what happens is the Jews that come don't find work readily, so so they become sellers, uh, have great warehouses, but then also take on um, these other cooking traditions of the Shepardic Jews who were already in London. So it's around about that time that they become embedded in this kind of London culture. Because cooking is not allowed, as we said before, on the Jewish Sabbath, that fried fish becomes this totemic Jewish food for even for the new Jewish immigrants. And then they then sell that on a Friday night in the street, but then in these very first chippies, in these very first chip shops. You'd have thought that it was because of sort of Catholic tradition that we ate fish and chips on a Friday. Interesting to know that it's Jewish tradition. I was absolutely floored by this, even though the fact that I knew that the the battering of the fish was Jewish and the first chip shops were owned by Jews in East London. I made that leap as well, you know, that this is Catholics not wanting to eat red meat on a Friday. I would have made an educated guess, which would have been wrong. I mean, you make you do make educated guesses which are wrong, like the British, uh, the Royal Navy, of course. <laughs> 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 well, that's an informed and studied opinion, David, <laughs> on my part. Oh, you're talking about yourself. Yes, yeah, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's amazing. I, I would, would absolutely have sworn on my uh, my grandmother's head that um, mm. it was about a Catholic tradition of eating fish on a Friday. Uh, mm. So I am educated and informed. Mm. Well, that's amused. what I, I like to do. When I ever take, whenever I take the reins of uh, the things that made England, <laughs> just you know, don't mention they... the Royal Navy now, okay? <laughs> <laughs> the mid nineteenth century is very important in terms of our story because how does Jewish style fish become this English dish? It's because of the railways. So we have all of a sudden this food from the coast can come into the country but can be distributed by the railways it was like the internet of its time it took the english working class to urban centers it took newspapers for the first time into urban centers it also took food because that's incredibly important but i hear you say what about fried potatoes what about fried potatoes (laughs) yes thank you luke uh potatoes in terms of them becoming a staple part of the European diet, their, their story is a little bit more murky. Very obviously, it gets the potato gets brought over from the new world to the old. But it's some time before people start frying them. And at first, uh, the, the humble spud was seen as uh, inedible. I think it was actually inedible. It wasn't until the Incas buried it. If it has chlorophyll in it, if it grows overground, it is actually poisonous. Well, that is true, isn't it? Green potatoes are, yeah. you know, absolutely. And that's boring. actually how they naturally grow above ground. I did not know that. Nor no. did I. I did not. There's two things I've learned. Good God, Luke. Wow. <laughs> You're on fire today, sir. Thank you. In Belgium, they believe that the story of fried potatoes originates in Spain yet again. Um, yeah. There is some story that uh, a 17th century fisherman was stuck out in the, in the sea And because he couldn't get back to land, he would carve potatoes into fish shapes and fry them for his supper whilst being on his boat. Whether that is true or not, it's not really until the 1860s that fried potatoes really arrive in England. However, Thomas Jefferson gets another little note here um, because on my podcast, 10 American Presidents, It's noted in the presidential speech episode that Thomas Jefferson, whilst being the American ambassador to France in Paris, has fries done in the French manner, which is fried potatoes, and takes that back to the United States. And so that reason why we call them French fries is because Thomas Jefferson are specifically when he goes back to the United States to have fries done in the French manner, which is sliced 
potatoes fried. But Belgian fries are the best fries of all. Well, the Belgians have a bit of a reputation, don't they? I mean, certainly the French yeah. claim that the Belgians eat nothing but yeah. uh, frites. Yeah. You know, but they've got quite a reputation in the chip world. Mm. Are they? Mm. That's maybe why they eat them all the time. They're small chips. Yeah. So we need to Like the French fry type thing. It, yeah. The patty. Right. Yeah. And then, of course, the reason why the Belgians um, have that link to Spain is because up until what the, the French Revolution, Belgium was part of the Spanish. Well, no, it was the Austrian Netherlands then, but previously it used to be the Spanish Netherlands. So Holland and Belgium, up until Holland becomes independent, uh, was part of the Spanish Dominion. So there is this cultural to and fro between uh, what is modern day Belgium and Spain because they're part of the Spanish crown. So that there is the, the link yeah. for that. The Oxford English Dictionary notes the earliest use of chips in this sense in Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities, which is in 1859, in which he writes husky chips of potato fried with redolent drops of oil. It's so, a far finer thing I do now than I would have done if I'd had triple fried chips. That's Dickens, is it? That, there you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well done. Now, this is where we have a certain amount of controversy, gentlemen. So hold on to your hats. There are competing claims as to where the first English fish and chip shop was. I love the fact that this most English of dishes starts with immigrants. I'm going to say it was a Jewish immigrant, Joseph Mallins, who opened the first chippy in the London neighbourhood of Bow in 1860. And I love the fact that it was Bow because it makes it as Cockney. It's yeah. a Cockney institution then, isn't it? It's within the sound of, of, of the Bow Bells. So it's incredibly apropos. Now, he'd been selling the combo fish and chips on the streets for years. As I said earlier, what you had were people walking around with trays selling this. But he decided to set up a chip shop. The other competing claim is up north, just outside of Manchester, in Oldham. And actually in the town of Mosley, which is just outside of Oldham. And there is a blue plaque to this day that says that there was a chip shop owned by John Lees in the town of Mosley, which opened in 1863. So I'm going uh, with, with uh, Joseph Mallins, but John Lees also has a claim to be the first English chip shop. The early fish and chip shops were very basic. They consisted of a large cauldron of cooking fat heated by a cold fire, and the fish and chip shop evolved into a fairly kind of standard format, the format that we know today, with the food being served in paper wrappings, uh, queuing customers in front of a counter, uh, which has a fryman behind it. This is a very simple, simple thing, as opposed to the complex sophistication of your modern fish <laughs> This is what we're saying, is it? <laughs> exactly. It hasn't really come far in the last 140 years, has it? <laughs> The dining experience it is today. Yes, wow. Progress. What sort of chip shops do you go to, Rob? But talking about progress, right, we, we are going to come on to progress uh, right now because chippies, of course, are takeaways. But the, the, So the concept of a fish restaurant uh, was, was something which comes about another 30 years later. A one Samuel Isaacs, another Jewish gentleman who ran a thriving wholesale and retail business throughout London and the south of England, opened up the first fish restaurant in London in 1896 serving fish and chips, bread and butter and tea for the price of ninepence, which sounds to me rather expensive, actually. Yeah, that's me, yeah. And that's ninepence in old money. It's yes, like I wonder now. what a labourer was earning those days. Anyway, yeah. yeah. Anyway, these restaurants had fancy things like, check this out, chaps, carpets. <laughs> right. Uh, no, things had... have gone backwards then. <laughs> that's what we're saying. <laughs> We've regressed. Yeah. You wouldn't want carpets. I'm not going to go into a chippy no. with a carpet. Well, uh, me, me either. But into, but there was a reason for it. They also came with table service, tablecloths, oh, flowers, okay. china, cut and cutlery, all the trappings of upmarket dining. That's what Samuel was going for, but an affordable price to the working classes for the first time. So it was to give the working class a feeling of opulence but at a price they could afford. By the time that Queen Victoria 
drew her last breath, fish and chips had become the staple food of England. The widespread appeal was as much its cheap price, its convenience and its flavour. Cheap, ready-cooked food on a working-class budget helped fuel the early labour movements of the 20th century. These are the movements that demanded social change, that gave us the birth of the modern Labour Party. Fish and chips became a totem. Fish and chips of gave the, birth to the Labour Party. Helped. Because <laughs> what, what it did, seriously though, yep. right? This was nutritional hmm. food at a very cheap price. And it becomes a working class totem. It's an emblem of new working class found identity within cities. Every corner had a chip shop. So the working classes could actually be fed. And because people were now nutritionally looked after, it solidified their position within society. And we see that economically and then politically. If we go back to, right. let's say, to the 1840s, there's always these images of the urban poor being ragged and starving. By the end of the 19th century, that is not the case. And it's not just fish and chips, very obviously, but fish and chips play a very solid part in that. Yeah. The urban masses within England are no longer ragged and starving. They have money in their pocket, but also they have food in their belly. And that food is fish and chips. Yeah. So fish and chips is a totem of the newly empowered English working class. And it's, of course, it's a wonderful example of cultural expropriation and English rebranding. We take this Jewish food, this Spanish or Belgian way of um, frying potatoes, and it's English. So important was fish and chips that the British government made safeguarding supplies of fish and chips during World War I a priority. The cabinet knew it was vital to keep families on the home front in good heart. Unlike the German regime, who failed to do that and failed to keep its people well fed. In, in 1918, those mutinies and those uh, rebellions and riots in Germany are yeah. all about food. They're all about food. And the British government, all the way through the war, knew that Having the people on side meant that the working classes needed their fish and chips. In 1937, Orwell's book, The Road to Wigan, in which he documents his experience of working class life in northern England, he considers that fish and chips chief among the home comforts, which he says act as a panacea for the working classes. And if there's any doubt of the importance of the meal during World War II, guess which dish remained one of the few foods in the United Kingdom not subject to rationing. Want to take a wild guess, David? Uh, let me think. So what you're saying is they're like Lenin's, Lenin, as far as religion is concerned, the opiate, of the fish and chips is the opiate of the masses. Mm. So I'm going to say the protected food was haddock and chips. Well, you, you've jumped ahead very slightly. Just be a little bit more generic. Venison. <laughs> Crying out loud. Bloody up to it, you know what? what are you doing on the train? That is. Love it. That's <laughs> a great answer, Luke. Is it, is it, it caviar? Is it, is it, is it wrong? It shows you the social divide that you know <laughs> between us, Luke, that you would reach for that as an example. I love it. It is, of course, fish and chips. Oh, right. Right. Shucks. The Prime Minister Winston Churchill referred to the combination of fish and chips as good companions and did not ration it throughout the whole of the war period. Now, how should fish and chips be served? Uh, classically, it's a bit of paper wrapper. And like many um, old duffers, I do lament the demise of yes. us using yesterday's newspaper as a way to bag up my chips. Chips are, of course, served in plain paper, um, sometimes a little bit of cardboard or even a, a plastic tub. I, I, I never like that. That's you know, a terrible that, innovation, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you get that in the seaside, don't you? With a little yeah. fork and you, you know, a little wooden fork and you stab the chip with an axe. It's almost, it's Actually, almost it's as bad saying, as having I, carpets in the fish and chip shop. Well, almost as bad as having venison in your little cardboard oh. tub. 
<laughs> okay, come with you to Oxford. I'd like some venison and chips, please. With yes, curry yes. sauce. Yeah. Um, <laughs> say, yeah. David, yeah. David, you mentioned, you said haddocken chips. Mm. You raise a really interesting point, right? Because in the good old UK, uh, there was a, a fish labelling regulation in 2003, which basically said that fish must be sold with a particular species named. So that is the reason why you go into many chippies now right. and you'll see codden chips or haddocken chips. Dependent on exactly where you are in England, uh, various authorities are, are quite lax on this. So, yes, the dish is called fish and chips, but dependent on whether you're in Birmingham over Manchester or whatever, that menu might well be labelled cotton chips, haddocken chips, because of the Food Standards Agency guidelines. Which was more now, common? Because I would have said cotton chips more than haddocken mm. chips. Yes, I'd have thought so. Yeah, yeah I would have thought. Yeah, I would have thought so too. Mm. I would have thought so. Who mm. can tell the difference between haddock place or um, indeed place? Cod? Is very different. Well, I just prefer place actually, but it doesn't make any. You know, it's um, we cover it in batter. Place is nearly as lardy dough as venison. Is it? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, me and the working classes have belly a nodding acquaintance. I'm in the pot. Classic so, line from Wooster, by the way. I'm yeah. sorry, I'm a magpie. Yeah, just, your your literary bent is is kind of ah, lost on me. Thank you. Sir. Fish and chips are very tasty, but are they good for us nutritionally? Uh, what do you reckon, Luke? Um. I, yes, I think they, they, fish is very good for you. Um, I mean, too much excessive fried oil can't be that good for you in the long run, I don't think. Quite a lot of mm. salt, I guess, as well. Mm. Yeah, but that's optional, I suppose. No. Yes, it, 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 is, it is very optional. Though, you know, it does give it semblance yeah. of taste, doesn't it? I must admit, I like yeah. to drown mine with copious amounts of vinegar. Well, yeah. apparently, somebody told me... Mm. Mm. After ten points, that the vinegar is the perfect accompaniment because it breaks the fat down. Right. I don't know if that is true mm. or not, but he, the guy had, I say, had no more than ten points, so it's got to be accurate. <laughs> yeah. I tell you, it's one thing about being over here. So you'll go to any halfway decent American restaurant, Californian restaurant. There will invariably be an option for fish and chips on the menu the chips aren't chips they're fries which always upsets me you know it's Does not it? that thick slice of mm. uh, potato it's interesting and then the batter isn't quite the batter from home however i always ask for vinegar because it they, it never comes with like a, no. a bottle of vinegar and, and they look at me like i'm crazy yeah i'm like like they, they just don't get it yeah. i'm like You've got yeah. to have vinegar with your fish and chips. And there's always some running around, somebody's doing in the kitchen trying to find it and whatever. And I'm just like, this is Yeah. And then you get and then you get white vinegar rather than malted or vinegar. Balsamic thank vinegar. You, yeah. Thank what, you. What's going on with you. this? You know? um, yes, like... balsamic vinegar. <laughs> <laughs> probably do. So I asked the question, are they good for us nutritionally? And the answer appears to be now be yes. Uh, fish and chips are a valuable source of protein, fiber, iron and vitamins, which provide a third of the recommended daily allowance of vitamins for men and nearly a half for women. And it's one of those examples of a traditional dish that was once mocked, but now is kind of much more appreciated as a not at all a bad meal. But, of course, I take the point, uh, Luke, that um, you can't be having – oh, was it you, that Dave, that said I can't remember? Absolutely. You can't be having um, fish and chips every day because of the amount of fat you're going to ingest uh, over time. But, however, once, twice a week, it's totally fine. Uh, nutritionists now tell us. It's a bit sort of hinge and bracket, isn't it? You know, um, old I... 1960s, 70s duo of men dressed up as women. That's the one. <laughs> I think you can see the connection, yeah? Uh, <laughs> they, they, sang a song called, they sang, yeah, exactly that. They sang a song called Everything in Moderation. Uh, I like doing things in moderation. Wow. You know, I've not me singing Indian Bracket in about 30 years, David. But hey, yeah, well, nor have I really. But meeting <laughs> you, Royfield, again, you know, brings it all back. <laughs> I know what that means, actually. <laughs> Gentlemen. At the turn of the last century, we 
Brits. I want to say Brits as opposed to the English now, because I could only find the stats for the UK, not for England. Consumed nearly 300 million servings of fish and chips a year, which equates to six servings for every man, woman and child in the country. There are now around 8,500 fish and chip shops throughout, again, the UK. But that number is declining. Um, oh, is it? Yes. I was going to yeah, say, it is. it's going up or down, is it? No, it's, it's going down. Affluent towns, affluent southern towns could even be the chip-free zones now, chip shop-free zones even. And, and that's that a terrible a- thing. My impression was that that had been a trend in the sort of the early 80s when, uh, you know, yuppies were around, but that it kind of reversed because I haven't, certainly around us, I haven't seen any of those chippies, unlike pubs, going out of business. So we talked about the affluent southern towns, which can be chip shop free zones. And, it, and it's, it's really a consequence of a changing palette of the country, but also with increased fast food competition, whether it's from American burgers, Turkish kebabs, or even Japanese sushi. But you make a point, though, David. And one thing which I, I don't actually have in my notes here is gentrification so there has actually been a reinvention of the good old chippy so i know in notting hill at notting hill gate there is a new chippy but really it's for tourists Hmm. and they sell a bag of fish and chips for a tenner which sounds to me utterly outrageous absolutely outrageous yeah but everybody's there in their traditional i'm serving chips garb ye oldie worldy writing ye oldie worldy chip shop and on a saturday when there were tourists before covid people queuing around the block for that place but then the other side of notting hill i think was john's chippy which is a a former shadow of of its once great self uh so when i moved to notting hill in the mid to late 90s people again round the block but those were locals and now it wouldn't even surprise me if it's actually closed down because mm. the, the the Friday queues for that place were a thing of history back when I left Notting Hill uh, three years ago. So I say it wouldn't surprise me if it's completely utterly closed down now. But Luke, I, I heard a hmm from you, like a knowing a nod and a wink in terms of the demise of the good old English chippy. No, it was more just when you said kebab. <laughs> 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 it was just a small hmm. Mm. You know? <laughs> Yeah, I prefer kebab to, to fish and chips, I have to admit. Shame. A bit more exotic. Uh... <laughs> I love a good kebab, actually. I do love a good kebab. But, um... And yeah, actually, you're right, aren't you, Roy? There's so much more choice these yeah. days. Have anything. Yeah. Go on, I've got a question for you both. If there's a totem pole of takeaway food, mm. what is at the top of that totem pole in terms of brand? So if you're saying, right, I'm going to have a really nice takeaway or I'm going to have a really cheap takeaway and I'm going to risk my life, what comes at the bottom, I, you know, I suggest to you the reconstituted meat slurry that is McDonald's would probably be at the bottom. And what would come at the top? And I would suggest yeah. triple, triple cooked chips in a, in a, a bijou uh, chippy. But I know, what do you think? What's, what's the totem pole look like? You know, it, it is interesting because there's nutritional and then there is symbolic. I think I'm talking brand here, yes. Forget the nutritional side. And then it's qualifying, is this takeaway or is this fast food? Because, And the reason why, because top of the nation's quick food, I would say, would be to have a cheeky Nando's. Mm. Yes, you sit in and have a Nando's, but that company has... The branding has gone completely into the national lexicon, a cheeky Nando's, right? We all know what we mean. And it's so quintessentially British. I said to somebody uh, just last year over here in California, um, so my brother's just going out for a, a cheeky Nando's. They went, what? On no level did they understand what I was talking about. Does it about. exist in the They state? didn't understand cheeky meaning quick. They didn't understand what a Nando's was. Yeah. Is it, and it, I would like. Do, do they exist in the in the states, Nando's? No, 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 no. no. It's a it's a British faux Portuguese yeah. brand. Yeah, I love. I'd, it. Have, I'd have thought that Nando's was significantly different from 
reconstituted meat slurry because you you know if you go if you go and eat reconstituted meat slurry what you do is you go in and you might sit down but you're not going to stay very long you're there to get out whereas for nando's you know i mean i love nando's although i'm not i won't allow myself to eat them because of the way the chickens are kept but you go into nando's you go in to stay and have a meal which is the reason why i said are we talking yeah. about the food or the brand or the whatever because you can argue lots of different ways and also i would argue that kebabs is a real tricky one because you yeah. can go to some kebab restaurants and it physically is the bitter meat which you're cooking off on that spit and then sometimes it's that reconstituted regurgitated i don't yeah. know what the hell it is yeah, it's sort of squished you together know. but yeah. if you think about the brand of coming mean, i totally agree about kebab i mean kebabs can be absolutely fantastic with yogurt and vegetables and fantastic mm. meat. But the brand of a of a kebab is only one above reconstituted meat slurry, isn't it? It's um, you're desperate. You've had twenty five pints. You had a <laughs> competition with tequila shot. David, and I haven't drunk twenty five pints all pond. year, and it's December. Yeah. <laughs> Time for a kebab then. And you know what I mean. You go and have a kebab from a caravan and you know what you're doing to yourself and the risks yeah. that you're taking you know you hold your life in your hands i mean the, you know the fish and chips and kebabs i think they're more comparable than something like a nando's which is a sit-down experience yeah, yeah. i agree and, and it's quite nice because they've never been taken over or branded haven't they like unlike you know yes. maybe yeah, pizzas or, or or hamburgers there's no fish and well, chips well, there isn't, there isn't. There's Harry Ramsden's. Yeah. And, and one of the things which I didn't include in my notes was, but I, I remember it from the research that I did. In 1953, a Harry Ramsden's chip shop in Yorkshire sold, check this out, 10,000 servings of fish and chips in yeah. one day. So oh. they book of records. Yeah. yeah. God, there's a lot of fish. Yeah. And chips. Around here, we've we've got quite a famous brand. I don't even know what they're called, but they do all the fish and chips vans, and they they're just in this right. sort of farm a, a couple of fields away from us. And so we always get these fish and chip vans, which have got a little boat on the top of them, and they all leave from here. And then you can you can smell the sort of oil <laughs> sort of frying as they go past. But it's great but for the rural community, which you know, so you can't have a one in each village. So they'll they'll go and stop in each village. Um, mm. And then, oh, yeah, that sounds like a really good. Idea. If you have a party, they'll come to your, your house. Oh yes, actually, I think I've had a, I've had a fishing trip from something similar. I don't yeah. remember the boat, but yeah. yeah, they hired a band to come, and everybody traipsed outside. It was a, yeah. ran it in the village hall, and they were traipsed outside and had fish and chips. Yeah. Just, just on that note, I'm trying to remember I what it was I ate. There was a food truck that came to my kids' town in Ontario, in s southern Canada. I'm going to say it was poutine, but it wasn't poutine, but it was a food truck. And they made a real thing of going onto social media and saying, on Thursday at seven o'clock, we're going to be here. But all the, you know, the digerati kind of turned up mm. and whatever, because, you know, it's only that's only going to be that time that week that the, the food truck selling this thing, which it's funny. I remember the event. I can't remember the food. Yeah. Isn't that yeah, interesting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. All the cool people, like my kids' friends, are like, oh my God, my kids and their friends are like, we've got to go there because the food truck's coming. It comes from Hamilton. Hamilton is so cool, yeah. you know, yeah. type of thing. So maybe that's an angle that your uh, rural fish, uh, mobile fish, yes, yes. Needs, <laughs> you need to go in for. Make a social event yeah. out of it on, on social media. You can track uh, them down also, somehow. Mm, There's also another, another brand, of course, Mr. Fish, which is a London brand right. of of chip shop which i'm all behind and um and they pull off that neat trick they are, they are a, a chain but it feels very local and you go in there they're a little bit flash but not too flash so your middle class sensibilities aren't trampled over by thinking that you're going into somewhere where the deep fat fire hasn't been changed for two weeks you know it's still the same old fat and also uh they give the they give the kills lollies when they when they go in there you know yeah. you make, they make a point of saying here you go so it feels like you still have some kind of service and it's very personable yeah so but but you are fundamentally right though that this british institution 
in terms of lock, stock and barrels not being taken over by big brands, it's still all about, you know, the local chippy fundamentally, isn't it? Yeah. And that, 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 that local guy who sets up a chip shop and he's been doing it for 15, 20, 30, <clears throat> 40 years type of thing. And it, and it follows in the family. But I just love the story of fish and chips. Um, it is, without question, it, it's going in the cabinet. <laughs> it's the one thing that Americans always say. They say, they, they decry our food and they go, but I like fish and chips. Yeah, and, and people that I know, Spaniards and Portuguese and Brazilians, they, you know, whenever they come here, they're really excited about having fish and chips. Yeah. While at the same time thinking the, the, the food's rubbish here. Yeah, exactly, um, exactly. Yeah. Oh, I, sorry, well, I have one more question for you. So is curry sauce A, acceptable, B, acceptable in England? Or is it a Scottish tradition? Do you have curry sauce? You know, when you're in Scotland, you go for a fish supper and like as not, you'll have uh, a curry sauce. I wouldn't touch it with a barge mm. No, But then you wouldn't touch fish and chips with a I don't like fish and chips. You're a venison eater. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you like to go out and then, and shoot your venison fresh, don't you, Luke? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, Luke. <laughs> um, it's the only way to do it. I don't mind. I don't mind a bit of curry sauce with my yeah. chips, David. Though it's it's a weird curry sauce, isn't it? It's it kind of green good. for a start yeah. off. It's got very little connection with curry. Yeah. Food. Something I have to say. I mean, you know, I used to enjoy it in in Scotland, but I wouldn't choose it south of the border for some reason. Don't know why. Mm. Anyway, probably not by the sound of things. Curry mushy sauce peas. Mm. Mushy peas. Yeah. I, mean, I can't get behind mushy no. peas. Well, that's a side dish for fish and chips. Do you get mushy peas in Brum? No, no. I mean, it's, it's very much a northern thing. It's a northern yeah, thing. It's, uh, north of the River Trent, I think, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, also, another thing which you do get, um, you get, uh, was it chips fried in dripping? Oh, that's Jeff, Which blew my mind. Oh, dripping, that's good. Like Everything oh. is better with dripping. Oh, Apple dripping. pie, anything. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't believe what I was eating when I went to college up in Murfield. I was like, where has this been all my life? And also bits. You yeah. know, the, the the you know, the bits, you know, that's again, that's a very northern thing to have, you know, bits. That was a way of using your offcuts in a way, in a, Yes. Yeah. What a bit? It's basically it's the bits of the batter, like right. little little balls of batter and they th throw that on, you know, I'll have I'm always with some bits, please. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's more honest than reconstituted meat slurry because they put that they put the gristle and the bone yeah. actually in the reconstituted meat slurry in a McDonald's, whereas mm. in a fish and chip shop they to, they try and sell it to you separately. I've got well, a bit of a downer on what you can And the marketing people haven't really gone to stuff work on some mushy peas bits <laughs> dripping. <laughs> <laughs> but it's unsaleable, isn't it? Can't but it's obviously not. It's obviously dripping. not unsaleable. It's a national institution. It's an our national dish, really. I mean, what no, I mean is you can't really gentrify it. I mean, it, you know, obviously no. you can in posh pubs. You know, you get, but you get stupid little sort of Jenga towers of triple cooked chips, and you kind of think, can you just not? I have the fatty stuff. Please, with the vinegar and the salt on it. Mm. I might die younger, but I'll have fun getting there. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And it, you can't gentrify it. Well, you know what, David? You're so wrong. You can gentrify it. And people do. I've, I've seen jerk chips now. Jerk yeah, seasoning on them. them. They're actually quite nice. Oh, they <laughs> were actually quite nice. <laughs> and it has to be said, as somebody who spends more than half my year outside of the UK, last year, I don't know why, but I went to i think i had fish and chips maybe twice a week and it's something yeah and i was really like oh this is a taste of home and i'd never experienced i'd never experienced that sense of loss beforehand but i was like chippy and i wanted a proper dare i say crappy looking chippy i want nothing fancy don't give me that flim flam Yes, you know, definitely. I want the deep frat fryer. I want the, the, the long counter. Yeah. You know that and that. <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, thank just... you. Pickled onions in a jar, all of them. Yeah, pickled onions, fantastic with uh, perfect yeah. food, fish and chips. Uh, pickled yes. eggs. I'm big on pickled eggs. No, I tell you yeah. what. Whilst David's pulling the face, uh, why don't we check up on the social media roundup and see what you all thought of the episode about the British Constitution. 
Hopefully, Royfield's fish and chips have been a bit of light relief from some of the weightier topics we seem to have been covering of late. Speaking of which, David's wonderful Constitution episode seems to have gone down well with the electorate. We had 53 votes in favour of it going into the Cabinet of Things That Made England, six saying no, and two on the sort of dunno scale. The Facebook comments were very interesting. I got totally schooled in not only British constitutional history, but also in interviewing techniques by Steeple Bell, who is from Texas. Texas! Steeple's main point being that if a constitution is not written down, it is no more than a mythical aspiration. Carol Pelosi, any relation? Joined the discussion to point out that the US constitution is written down, but that hasn't protected US democracy from being threatened. Eric is one of our great commenters and asked whether there was anything more English than setting up a group of rules, making them as confusing as possible, never writing them down, and assuming the right people will just understand it. And, as it happens, it turns out that there is. The most quintessentially English thing that he had ever encountered was Fiona's story about her childhood in Somerset, where there were two villages. The inhabitants of one village had panage rights, so were allowed to collect fallen wood and berries, whereas the other village had cuttage rights, so was allowed to chop wood. These rights were based on the Forest Charter and were notably disregarded by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. But not by Fiona, I imagine. We do love the Forest Charter, don't we? It's the Magna Carta for the little guy. David has been trailing his upcoming series on buns, which I am much looking forward to. At the very least, I hope to learn how to make a crumpet. It's worth coming on over to the Facebook group to see some of his early attempts. David challenged our perennial quizzer, Historic London Tours, to a quiz question of his own. He shared a map image and asked what confectionery item had been conceived there. Ben pointed out that the question wasn't very difficult given that the map had Chelsea in large letters on it, and David then posted a picture of the Chelsea bun. I can assure you that the quiz questions that I have been preparing for the bun fight on the 16th of January will be a lot harder than that. Tradition means something, so of course, we had to have a to and fro about cheesecakes. Michelle posted a picture of a dish that really is peak TTME, given that it is a cheesecake that includes Worcestershire sauce. God, I don't think I can pronounce that myself. Worcestershire sauce. Worcestershire sauce. Inevitably, Rowena cast a wary eye on this creation to see that to see if it passed muster as a cheesecake. Speaking of which, Eric again seems to think that no one would ever need more than one bottle of the sauce in a lifetime. And not for the first time, Eric is wrong. But not as wrong as Saoirse, who thinks the same of Marmite. Leanne soon put her right and Leanne is from California. I am so glad to know that Marmite has made it as far as the West Coast. We have been a little remiss about welcoming new members to the Facebook group, which, as David would say, is rather rude and we do apologise. Facebook handily summarises the newest members for me, so my thanks to the five most recent members is in name of everyone else that has jumped aboard the good ship TTME Facebook recently. We love you all, and please do feel very free to chip in with comments. Alex, Ibitsam, Nibin, Bonnie, and L. Well, Well, I tell you what, a show where I'm not involved generally is quite a dull one. I, and I think that's been so, <laughs> so safety for social You're media. Very <laughs> <laughs> um, Gee, I was bored with that one. There's nothing like uh, crowd obloviating. Um, now, folks, remember true. to join in with the, the whole goings on here at the Things That Paid England. We need you to go to go and join our Facebook group if you're not already a member and um, go and tell us what you think of fish and chips and whether it should be uh, a part of the cabinet, one of the things that made England. And of course, there's no dissension. It has to be in there. It's as English as... It's as no, English as what, Luke? That's fish then. and chips. Wait a minute. Fish and chips is as English as fish and chips. Is that but, your answer? I, but that's the saying, though, isn't it? It's as English <laughs> as fish and chips. That's my point. You can't get anything more quintessentially yeah. English. Yeah. Well, that apart comes from... 
Spain via Belgium and the Jews in the East End of London. Well, makes all yes. sorts of sense. It's like Alan Mann being a great English cricketer. You're absolutely right. Mm. There you go. There you go. Right. Uh, so, Luke, I believe you have some news on Patreon for us. Yes, indeed. Um, we have set up a Patreon uh, page where we've got currently just the one tier, um, but we will be working on, on it over time. Uh, we'd very much like you to join up, and the site is patreon.com forward slash TTME. Oh, cool. Uh, Maybe if you go to a second tier, we could send you out a free fish and chips or something. I, I tell I tell you what, right, right? By the time those chips come, they're going to be pretty manky, aren't they? Yeah. Well, right. you know, dreadfully manky. Mm. However, leads me on to tell somewhat of a, a story, tiny little wee story. Planet Money, one of the best podcasts, if not the best podcast, other than your output, David and mine. And Luke, are you still producing podcasts independently? Uh, no, not currently. Just this. All right. Well, anyway, wouldn't have been as good as one of the podcasts you used to once produce. <laughs> right. Planet Money. I was once I did not get out of my car. I was driving. I remember I was driving around Toronto on the freeway, got to my destination, did not get out of my car. It was an episode about fries. A woman in a food company, an American food company, went to China on holiday and saw that uh, there were a, there was a delivery service from McDonald's sending giving people fries, and she said by the time those fries get there, they're going to be dank and limp and not stiff, crisp and warm. So she goes back to America and says to her company, "Food delivery is going to be the future." This is back two thousand and ten, and they laughed and said, "No one is ever going to order food on the internet." for it to be delivered. She said, no, it's happening in China, in Shanghai. But what we need to do is look at the humble potato and figure out ways so it can keep its shape, heat and consistency for longer than 20 minutes because that's the average time for deliverance. And she, she worked on it with a crack team of scientists and neutrologists, etc., for three years and came up with a fry that could keep its warmth, shape and consistency and integrity for 25 minutes. And it was a total smash. And I tell you, right, I just, I couldn't get out of the car for listening to this. I was like, is she going to do it? Is she going to make the perfect fry for delivery? And she did. It was the best bits of podcasting I've ever heard in my whole life, folks. But then that, again, does, we... that does sound very good. So she, the trip keeps his integrity for 25 minutes. Yeah. Do you think we ought to send this lady to go and see uh, Boris Johnson? <laughs> Boom. Oh, like Come that. on, man. Hey, hey. <laughs> yeah, you're on fire today. Just go in, Mr. Lefty. Because that's my, that's my <laughs> issue with the, with the fish and chips chips, is by the time they've come home in a newspaper, um, they're all soggy. They are a bit soggy, yeah. But, but you know what, though? Because they're thicker, they remain edible for longer than a fry. Yeah. A fry, yes. just like, they go off so fast, yeah. so fast, which is a, a complete point. And basically... What she discovered, it was water going to the surface of the chip. That's what kills it and makes it go limp. So you need to, so within the potato, you need to retain the water for longer. But it was the most entertaining, engrossing, and educational 20 minutes of podcasting I've ever heard. And I'm just going to say I to the producer of that podcast. It was utterly brilliant. Utterly yeah. brilliant. I don't like uh, the use, use of the words engrossing and limp in the same same sentence. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I said engrossing, not, not engorged. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And limp. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what were you thinking of? Listen, folks, um, hopefully you've enjoyed this episode of The Things That Made England, talking about a meal which is close to all of our English hearts, fish and chips. So that's me, Royfield Brown, signing off. Uh, Luke Baxter, would you like to sign off, sir? Uh, cheerio. Thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. David Crowther. Is that Hi, it? everybody. Lovely. Thanks for coming and all that. Smashing. We'll see you all again soon for another rip-roaring, barnstorming episode of The Things That Made England. Tatty bye. Tarara bit. <laughs>